that begin, join with me in prayer. Father, we pray now that your spirit who wrote the Bible would speak to our hearts that he gave life to and that you would draw us to yourself through your word. I pray, Lord, that anything that is not of you, you would protect us from it. But everything that is from you, may we receive it. May it penetrate our hearts and grow and produce fruit that lasts. So I ask your guidance and grace on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last weekend, America was horrified when the news of two mass shootings invaded our lives. And uh, El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio joined the communities who were trying to make sense out of what appears to be random evil. Uh, when something like this happens, their first thought is to lay blame on something or someone. Um, if you've been like me, watching the reaction to these events over the week, I'm not sure that that's helpful. Um, I'd much rather see if we might discuss maybe finding meaning in the midst of the difficulties and the hardships that we find life. Finding answers to things like this have occupied uh, thinkers, theologians, social engineers since the beginning of civilization. And they ask the question, why? Why is there suffering and pain in the world? And then, once they put that question on the table, the next question or a series of questions is, well, what are we going to do about it? And so we look at the efforts of mankind to address these questions. And certainly events like what happened last weekend raise a lot of questions. And here are the two ways, historically, generally speaking, that thinkers and social engineers have thought about these two questions. Why and what do we do about it? First thing that's been suggested is there is no answer. Philosophers have decided, some philosophers have decided this life is meaningless. Um, pain and suffering and hardship, you just got to learn to deal with it because stuff happens. And just hope it doesn't happen to you. Well, that's a hard, hard thing to come to grips with. And so another thing that has happened, and this is what we're in the midst of now, is, well, let's, let's learn to overcome these things by human advancement and self-promotion. That's what's going on in our world right now. And the world is looking for a com making a commitment to this alternative of saying, we got to figure this out. We have to do something about this, and it rests within our power to do something. We have to figure it out. Well, this morning I'd like to refer us to the journal 
of one of the kings of Israel, Solomon, and he asks these two questions as well. He asked the question, in the midst of suffering and pain in the world, is life just meaningless? And then he said, well, I am going to figure things out. I'm going to try to find the solution myself. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes down his personal journal to discuss these two alternatives that respond to the evils and the pain and the suffering we find in life. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's tucked away in the Old Testament. It's uh, right around the book of Psalms. And uh, if you want to think about how to understand where Ecclesiastes, just think of the Mexican dollar, pesos. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And so that's where you can find Ecclesiastes, right after Proverbs, right before Song of Solomon. I'm going to suggest this morning that this journal gives us assurance from God in the midst of a world that appears like it is spinning out of control. Now, as I begin this message, I want to remind us that this will be most helpful for those of us who are not currently in the midst of a raw experience with pain and suffering. This message really is intended to help us who are not yet in the midst of that pain and suffering. Um, because all of us one day will be. Just because that's the nature of our world. And so this is a message for those of us before the storm comes. It's a message before pain and suffering visits our personal lives. How can we be prepared for it? Um, open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, and let's look at how Solomon addresses these two questions. Is life indeed meaningless? He addresses that question in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. So let's start right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. And here's what Solomon says about life. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Of course, he is the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. He's going, to, he's going to describe cycles. And as he describes these cycles, his conclusion is that there's just, there's just no meaning in them. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. There's a cycle. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. Another cycle. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, 
there's something new. Of course, the answer is no. It is here already, long ago. It is here before our time. No one remembered the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Here's the king of Israel, God's man, looking at life under the sun and saying, it just makes no sense. But it doesn't seem like he's satisfied with that solution. So now he goes on and he searches out by looking at the second alternative. He wants to see if he can find meaning. He wants to see if he can produce meaning himself. And so he delves in to every possible way that he could personally find meaning in life. And he starts with intellectual pursuits. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. He thinks, well, I'll just become smart. I'll just learn everything there is to learn. And that will give me the answers. Here's what he says. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. They're chasing after the wind. Verse 16, I said to myself, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Well, the answer's not there. So finding intellectual advancement, that's not the way to go. So then he says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, how about pleasure? Maybe I can find meaning in pleasure. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. <laughs> Boy, is that our culture or what? <laughs> right? But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. Then what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Pleasure. Ernest Hemingway is one of the 20th century authors that championed pleasure. And he wrote in his writings, life is one Blankety, blankety, blank. But he doesn't say blankety, blank. After another. He pursued pleasure and it, it left him no answers. So Solomon said, well, maybe I can find meaning in materialism. In acquiring things. So in chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. I amassed silver and gold for myself and treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem. I denied myself nothing. I refused my heart no pleasure. 
Yet when I surveyed all my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, it was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. John D. Rockefeller was asked one day, how much money is enough? And you all know what he said. Just a little bit more. Materialism always leaves us wanting more. Pleasure always leaves us wanting more. The more degrees you have, the more you realize you don't know, so you want more degrees. Where does it end? So Solomon says, I know what I'll do. I'll build a career. And so in chapter 2, verse 17, he said, All of it is meaningless, the chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. <laughs> Isn't that true? And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they'll have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. Wow. He's looking under the sun for meaning. He's looking. He's trying to get it himself. He's trying to say, I can solve this question. I can find meaning in life. Everywhere Solomon goes, he tries to figure it out, but he can't figure it out. I want you to remember that 11 times in the first two chapters, there's this phrase, under the sun. Did you see that? Under the sun. Search for meaning. Search for solutions. Under the sun. That means looking for things in this finite life is like expecting that we can find from things of this life under the sun, but only God who lives above the sun can give. We spend way too much time and effort searching for that perfect explanation, that complete solution to our problems. You know the song that you sing when you're at a wedding reception or at a children's birthday party? Put your right foot in, put your right foot out, put your right foot in and shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey and you turn it all about and then what's it say? Really? You know, that's what searching for meaning and purpose and answers and solutions under the sun is. It's a bunch of hokey pokey. You won't find it. And Solomon didn't either. And so he decided, you know, even though questions remain, when we place our faith in God, you ready for this? When you place your faith above the sun, there is no need to figure it all out. There is no need to figure it all about. Inherent in biblical faith is faith. 
mystery. And I've said this often. If we could figure out God, you know what we'd do? We'd put him in a manual, put him on the shelf, and then we'd go off and look for something else. And we'd leave God totally out of our lives. But when we are looking for God above the sun, there is something authentic, something satisfying. And we lay aside those things that we can't figure out. But here is some good news. God has given us some answers. He hasn't given us all the answers. But he's given us some answers. And if we can look above the sun for meaning through the lens of these answers that God has given us, then we'll be able to put our head on the pillow at night and say, you know, I don't need to have it all figured out. Here are the three things that Solomon tells us that we can know for sure that are above the sun. And if we can look at life under the sun through the lens of these three truths, we'll be freed from the need to figure it all out. First truth, God is sovereign. God is in control. God is sovereign. And Solomon tells us that in chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. He says this, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. I would suggest to you that history is progressing exactly the way God is intending it to progress. And for some reason, along the way, God allows evil. Now, he doesn't create it. He is not responsible for it. And he has set a limit. Imagine if he had not set a limit. Imagine if there was no limit to evil. There is a limit to evil. But sometimes evil touches even us. Um, my wife and I uh, watched a movie together this week when I was home called Breakthrough. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's a movie uh, starring uh, Chrissy Metz. She's the gal that's on This Is Us. And uh, it's a movie about a little boy who with his teenagers were playing on the thin ice and they fell through the ice. And when they finally pulled him out, he was not responsive to anything. And so in the emergency room, she was in the emergency room with her son, and she prayed to God, and she said, Holy Spirit, breathe life into him. And boom, the heart monitor started to go. And the doctors were amazed. And so that began a 72 or 84-hour recovery time. And miraculously, this little boy came back to life just as normal as he was prior to his accident. 
So this little boy was known in school as the Miracle Boy. <laughs> and so he went to school, and one of his teachers after class said, Would you stay back just a minute? And she looked at him, and she said, My husband died last month, last year of a brain aneurysm. Why did he save you and not my husband? Well, the little boy is not a theologian, and the producers of this movie didn't answer the question. They just left us who were viewing with that question. And the answer is, I don't know. How do, you, how do you deal with that? You deal with that with the truth that God is sovereign. And you see, sometimes in life, we let mystery, we let pain, we let suffering get the best of us, not because we don't know all the answers. Sometimes we let it get the best of us because we believe the wrong answer. And the wrong answer is that God is not sovereign. The wrong answer is that your God is too small. You ever bought a pair of shoes that are too small? And you put them on your feet, they hurt your feet, and they get blisters on your feet, and they're uncomfortable, and you hate those shoes, and so what do you do? You take them off and throw them away. Why? Because your shoes were too small. Brothers and sisters, when we face hardship and difficulties in life, if our God is too small, we'll be uncomfortable with him. And it'll hurt. And eventually, we'll throw God away. That's the wrong answer. The right answer is given to us from the Apostle Paul, who told us in Ephesians chapter 1, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We know that for sure. We don't know everything, but that's what we know. In all things, he is God. You don't have to figure it all out. So that leads us to a second question, a second truth that Solomon gives us. Not only is God sovereign, but God is good. God is good. Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Isn't that good? This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without them, who can eat? Without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? Then he says in chapter 3, verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. Theologians call this God's common grace. He gives us beautiful days like this. He gives us the love of family, the love of husband and wife, the ability to have children and to love children, to experience the good things in life. To all people, God loves us because he's a good God. God's purpose for us is not evil and suffering. Certainly it happens, 
But listen, God takes the worst that happens. And because he is sovereign, he can turn it into a catalyst to make us strong. Suffering turns our hearts to God in dependence. And then when we turn to him in dependence, he meets us in the midst of that suffering and he gives us his grace and strength. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it was run by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him, now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see how God meets us in the difficulties of life, and he grows our faith. That's a good God. But that's not all. The cross demonstrated the commitment of God to identify with us in the midst of our suffering. God is not a God who sits up on a white cloud and strums its heart while angels fan, faint, fans. That's not our God. Our God came to identify with us and he walked the dirt path of life and experienced pain and suffering right along with us. My favorite testimony is the testimony of a Bible scholar, the late John R. W. Stout. I've read this to you before. Let me read it to you again. I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectively before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. That's Buddhism. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsakenness. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain and entered our world of flesh and blood and death. He suffered for us. And then he says this, our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ. This is God's self-justification in a world such as ours. See, that's a good God. That's a good God. And then consider, finally, Crucifixion turned into resurrection. 
where God ultimately demonstrated his power over sin and death. You see, persecuted Christians in Vietnam, India, Africa, China, they see evil and wickedness of man, and then they see the love and goodness of God who gave himself for them. And then they turn to God in faith and receive the gift of eternal life and recognize that they will one day reign with Christ forever and ever. Listen to the testimony of one whose life was, was invaded with evil and suffering. Quote, Yes, sin is devastating. Death is relentless. And if you and I do not have a true sovereign that can defeat such things with certainty, then we ourselves are hopeless. But there is one who is just this sovereign and just this good. The scripture tells us of Jesus, who himself being God, became a man with the express purpose of defeating death and disarming sin of its power. If Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, who is sovereign and good, is able to save sinners from the deadly enemy of death, it is Jesus who gave his life as a sufficient sacrifice to pay the penalty due to us rebels. He died on the cross, rose victoriously from the grave, and, declared the, and God declared the Son of God with power. His resurrection from the dead is the proof that death and sin have been defeated. That is a good God. God is sovereign. God is good. Through those lenses, through the lens of those truths, we don't have all the answers, but they help us not to need all the answers. But there's one final truth from Solomon. And that answers this question. Well, what about evil? Does God simply look the other way? No, Solomon tells us unequivocally, not only is God sovereign, not only is God good, God is just. God is just. The last paragraph in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, says this. Now all has been heard, and here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Over and over, the storyline of the Bible, Bible is that God demonstrates his justice over evil. And ultimately, God demonstrates that he will overcome evil. The Old Testament prophets have demonstrated this. Elijah on Mount Carmel, he demonstrated that God is greater than the prophets of Baal. Before the exile, foreign armies would come in and try to overcome uh, Jerusalem because it wasn't God's time yet. And God overcame those foreign enemies. Sometimes God uses the instrument of government to judge evil. By the way, that's what the Bible tells us is one of the primary roles of government, to judge 
evil. But there's an ultimate perspective that is beyond time. There's an ultimate perspective that says the moment a believer leaves this earth, when God takes our hand and pulls us into the next life, we are kept from evil. We know that the prayers of those martyred for their faith are kept by God and they will be vindicated in the final judgment. And we know that in the new heaven and the new earth, we will have our final destination where God and the people of God live together in paradise, a perfect fellowship with God, just as Adam and Eve had before the fall. But we also know that those who set their face against God, those who shake their fist at God, like the shooter in Dayton, Ohio, who said that he was on his way to hell, there will be judgment. And actually, it's, it's, a, it's a truth that's almost too awful to talk about, isn't it? Awful to think about eternal conscious punishment. But if there were no eternal conscious punishment, could God be just? No, God is just. God is just. And we would be subject to that same judgment were it not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the righteousness that he gives to us as a gift when we put our faith and trust in him. So what do we do in the meantime? How do we live while we wait for God's justice to come? Well, some of us post on Facebook or Twitter, and we join with our allies, and we get angry, and we, we say all kinds of things that later I'm sure we regret. But since God is just, our reaction can be much different. We can rest in the knowledge that there will be a day. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay it. The dirty rats of life will not get away with it. Oh, we pray for the dirty rats. We do. We pray for our enemies. But if they shake their fist at us, and if they shake their fist at God, and if they die shaking their fist at God, one day God will say, time for you to face the judgment. And we, because we know that God is sovereign, because we know that God is good, God will do it just right. Just right. And brothers and sisters, listen. If we know that God is sovereign, if we know that God is good, if we know that God is just, that's all we need to know. We don't have to have it all figured out. So what do we do? Well, couple of suggestions. Number one, when evil and pain and heartache visit our lives, grieve. Make sure you grieve. It's good to grieve. Now, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we still grieve. Make sure you grieve pain and suffering when it visits your life. 
And you'll walk through the stages of grief. The first thing you'll do is you'll denial. You'll just say, this isn't happening. And then you'll have anger. You'll go through an angry time. And you'll be mad at God. But then you'll bargain with God. And you'll say, God, how about if I do this? And then you make this go away. But then you grieve. Then you cry. Then you cry out to God. Just like the psalmists have done. And how long, oh God, how long is this going to happen? This is horrible. My, my pillow is wet with my tears. That's healthy grieving. And then we come to the place where we recognize God is sovereign, God is good, and God is just. But not only do we grieve personally, we love. We love one another when we go through suffering and pain. This is the church. This is the church. We share our resources. We come alongside one another. We care for one another. We love one another. We sit with one another. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. That's why God gave us the church. So that when hard things happen in life, we are not alone. And third, hope. Hope. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and that dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in a cloud to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Hallelujah. Then Paul says, encourage one another with these words. We need to be encouraged that this life under the sun is not all there is. And when we know that, we don't have to have it all figured out. Because questions will remain. But when we place our faith in God, we don't have to have all the answers. This side of life, under the sun, life doesn't make much sense. There are times when under the sun we simply submit to mystery. We rest in the assurance at those times. Say them with me. God is sovereign. God is good. God is just. Then we find peace. Here's what Paul says. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. For Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. I would suggest set some boundaries with how much earthly things you're going to allow into your life. You can't get away from some of them, but set some boundaries. Put boundaries on how much news you listen to. Set boundaries on Hollywood. Set boundaries on how you're going to interact with people. We can only worry so much about our children and our job and our health until we eventually become overwhelmed. Set boundaries on those thoughts. My wife and I catch each other when we get grumpy. You're getting grumpy. You're looking at life under the sun. You're right. I need to set my mind on things above. 
So then there's this question. Are we so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good? I close with a very profound quote from C.S. Lewis. If we aim for heaven, we also hit earth. But if we aim for earth, we miss them both. Set your mind on things above. Then we don't have to have it all figured out. So we pray together. God in heaven, our human nature wants everything figured out. We want it all laid out for us. And sometimes we wish that we didn't have to take trust. We wish that you didn't call us to a life of faith. God forgive us for that. Because in the midst of mystery, in the midst of faith, that's when you build spiritual muscle. That's when you give us compassion for others. That's when you show yourself to us the most. And that's when we realize that when we are weak, then you are strong. We want you to be strong in us, God. Help us to set our mind on things above. And then we won't have to have it all figured out. In Jesus' name we pray.